What does it really look like to build a sustainable future for the global majority? We are on a mission to find out. I'm Marilyn Waite. And I'm Andrew Chang. And this is the Global South Climate Tech Podcast. Where we unearth innovations that are redefining what's possible for an ecologically and socially just economy. For the global majority. Today, Marilyn and I are sitting down with Todd Eldridge, uh, a good friend, a partner, an ally and champion in the climate tech space, a man who wears many hats, both literally and figuratively. He's a man of many talents. He's a poet, a musician, a venture builder, an investor, and also just an amazing human being. But officially, Todd Eldridge is the current managing director of climate innovation an incubated practice at Jobs for Future Labs, also known as JFF Labs. He's drawn on more than 25 years of experience as an investment professional. He leads a cross-collaborative team focused on the intersection of climate and workforce. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you today. We covered so much ground. We absolutely did, Andrew. We were planning on speaking with Taj about the workforce and jobs And we ended up covering so much terrain around music, eco-musicology, the global south in all of its dimensions, including the global south and the global north, and art, and climate narrative, and how to speak to everyone about climate, not just the insiders. Truly amazing. Yeah, we even talked about global south climate technologies, including leveraging palm fronds to be used for alternative fuel. We were able to talk about using a soccer ball to act as a mini generator in markets uh, where this is very applicable. And so we got to see a whole breadth of local solutions that are addressing local challenges. Okay, so before we give too much of this away, let's jump into the conversation. Taj, welcome to Dubai COP28. Thank you so much. You broke out. Is that Arabic? <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, Say absolutely. one more time. Yeah. I like that. I bet you're like a fish to the ocean here. Actually, no. I, I think even though this is considered by some standards the global south, it is not. I think we have a lot of global south transitioning. But the Arabic in the background I, I see is from a different place on the continent of Africa, which I think is far different than what we see here. Even though it's close, it's different. Tell me more. For me, the display of wealth here is really interesting, right? Because I think a, a lot about the value of wealth. Last night we were at an event and we were talking about what would happen if people escaped this earth and go to another planet. Like we have so many luminaries in the U.S. thinking about doing with, with Bezos and, and Musk. The question would would wealth have a different meaning there? And so I think that's one of the things that's been happening a lot in these conversations for me. And I think about the place like this in Dubai versus Amdurman and Khartoum in, in Sudan. And, you know, how the thought and the ideas are different as well. That's fascinating. Tell our listeners about your connection to Sudan. Yeah, my, my late father family was, was from there. I've never had a chance to, to go. Coming off of a war now, and there's been a lot of that here, and also being an American citizen is quite difficult, uh, given our political system about the country right now. But I think things will change, hopefully for the better. 
And if I'm not mistaken, most of the residents in the UAE are not Emiratis. I think the number, if I can remember, is 11% are Emirati and more than 80 plus percent are Filipinos, number one, Ugandans, Nigerians, um, a few smattering of Somali, Sudanese, and um, and a few others from, from Africa. It's really interesting to see this, right? And especially in a place that was beginning to talk about wealth, but how is that wealth distributed? You know, it's really interesting for me. I was racially profiled in Abu Dhabi at the airport. I don't know if it's my first time, but it's definitely a first time in a long time. And I was very much taken back by it. I was like, wait, what is going on? And I'm always surprised because I have both Global North and Global South passports. But I break out my Global North passport and then it's all good. Right? No problem. Yeah. But based on visuals, they're making assumptions. And I'm like, did you not get the memo for these next few weeks during COP28? You have to pretend. (laughs) Like, it's all good. Like, there's no racism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think maybe Dubai staff were trained, but Abu Dhabi didn't get the memo. Yeah, Abu Dhabi is a little bit more conservative, I would think, than Dubai. And, and I think just because of where we at. What's also interesting, too, if you talk to any African that's here, there there's a difference, right? If you're from the northern part of Africa and you're lighter skinned than I am and you speak Arabic, you, you kind of have a, a bit of a, an advantage, but if you're darker skinned, say from Uganda or Nigeria, it's a lot of Ugandans here, I think, as well. It's a different experience they have. But I think what's interesting for me is that being in the climate space, we often talk about climate migration. And I've always said that climate is also economic and it's tied to that as well. Because when you have a situation where you're in a place to where the climate impacts your way of life and way of making money, you must move. And I think a place like Dubai for the people here, I think the visa is three months that you can come freely. It makes a difference. Yeah. Right. Taj, I saw you at the tech and innovation stage, Hall 2, and you touched upon these topics uh, during your talk. Tell me about that experience on the tech stage and some of the other panelists and how that is representative of some of the thematics that are happening at COP28 this year. Yeah, absolutely. I think the first thing that I did that I noticed is that if you remember in the very beginning, there was a question that the moderator said. She said, how many people are in this in this place are from the global south? And over 60% raised their hand. And at that moment, we had a conversation. I said, well, why don't we name it the global majority? This is the global majority here. So put a new spin on it. And so that was one of the first kind of awakenings that happened to that for me personally around it. I think the other thing that we talked about a lot there is the idea of the difference in the climate space of mitigation versus adaptation. And I, and I think the idea of adaptation is going to be something that more people who live in the global south are going to have to deal with and are dealing with, whether it's in the continent of Africa and different countries or in the Caribbean, where I think Marilyn and I have some some family ties there too. And I've spent a significant amount of time there. And so I think that that's one of the things that I, I wanted to make sure. I think also, too, when I think about COP, and, and I haven't been, been able to go from, from health reasons for a number of years, but when I think about COP, I think about a lot of promises. I think about a lot of pledges. And it reminds me of George Floyd. There were a lot of promises and pledges then that did not come to fruition. And so when I think about technology and I think about finance, the area that I'm in, I feel like we're not climate activists. We're climate actionists. Because it takes capital to, to move that technology and to allow the technology to implement and, and go fast and go further. And speaking of capital, there are quite a few announcements over the past couple of days in terms of various countries pledging to the loss and damage fund. 
uh, UAE, 100 million. Germany was 100 million. What are your thoughts on that? And is it enough? Is it a good starting point? Walk me through that. Yeah, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about, you know, what does it exactly mean, the loss and damage fund? Because at, last, at the last COP in, in Egypt, what they talked about was this idea of countries that have been impacted by climate from the global north should have some, let's say, reparations, for lack of a better word. And it was pledged there. And then what a lot of us were really kind of upset about, it was just, okay, pledge, what's, what's next, right? And I think here the idea was fulfillment and the, the idea of funding going towards that. The question for me is that what does that funding look like, right? I'm a former banker who became a VC. And so debt is sometimes cheaper than equity for founders, but not necessarily for countries. Mm-hmm. And I think about 1804 with Haiti and their experience with debt that I believe personally has impacted them for over 200 years. I think about so many different countries in, in the continent of Africa where the great economist Dembisa Moyo says it's debt aid. And so I think for me, what, I, what I'm hoping that it happen is that in addition to these pledges, there's people who step up and say, we need to do more, we need to give more because that's nearly not enough. But also we need to think about who's administering it. The World Bank, I have my concerns, but I, I think that it's an opportunity for, for change. Even though I'm an economist, which is the dismal science of doom and gloom, I'm also a poet, which means I'm an optimist. So I'm hoping that the possibility of change will occur with the loss and damage fund. And just to follow up on the Haiti example, you know, France actually made Haiti pay them yes. reparations yes. for getting out yes. from under the colonial rule. For years. For, for years. years. I mean, the Haitians paid for the beauty that we know of Paris. Yep. And there has been an official apology from the French government, but that didn't come with any money, no investment. Yep. And to your point, equity builds wealth, not debt. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think that it's short-sighted to believe that the problem that we have and the wealth of the nations that's, that's been there um, where they need to have a, a debt type of vehicle for this. If we're truly about saving this earth, what are we saving it for? We're saving for the inhabitants on it and all of it. When we talk about a just transition, it doesn't just mean for some of us. It means for all of us. And I think that for me, when you talk about climate and solutions, it's also political. When you talk about workforce and climate, which I'm really excited about, it's also political and economic and, and all these things. And I think that you know, throughout history, you know, last night we were with a bunch of people in the music industry who had no idea about climate, but they understood the impacts of climate because they travel all over this world to have these parties. And they saw it. They just didn't have a name for it. And and I think that was a great opportunity to kind of place the experience that they had with the names that we all know in this industry. That was one of the other things that was surprising to me about COP was the ability to not only have the folks who are talking about from a policy standpoint here, but the regular folks that are here. Often when I come to Dubai, I go to old Dubai, mm. the souks and a lot of the other people, as we talked about, the, the immigrants that are here and have these conversations. And um, often it starts with music. Music has been a great leveler and a great connection point for a lot of people as well. And the spice markets as well. Oh, absolutely. So you go and then it's just very fragrant. Cardamom tea. Oh my God. Yeah, it's very nice. Wait, I have to go. Take me out of this COP28 bubble. <laughs> yeah, get the water taxi, yeah. go over there, get some fresh cinnamon, drink some of the tea. I don't drink coffee, so tea is, is my jam. Yeah. And it, it's delicious. 
Absolutely. I want to double tap on that music and climate because I think one of the interesting themes here also is being able to express the climate challenges, maybe climate wins through art, through music. And, you know, you're a poet and you're a musician. How can we put those worlds together to access more of the mainstream audience? How do we communicate climate to the world and be more inclusive? I think this is where diversity inclusion comes in because the climate conversation has been so very much homogeneous for so many years. It has not allowed that to come in. There are a number of cultures where music is a part of life. It's a way of life. So it naturally comes out in conversation in the way we speak, the things that we do. And it's, it's interesting, when people book time with me on an app and schedule, there are three questions I ask. What's the reason we're, we're talking, number one? Number two, what will make you happy in this year? Happiness is very important for me from a quality standpoint. And lastly, your favorite song. And it, it amazes me, number one, that I've been doing this for three years. No one has picked the same song, which for me talks about diversity because it's, just, it's beautiful to see that. And I think number two, I do get weary when people say I have no song. Because I'm like, okay. Well, <laughs> you have no favorite song? You have no favorite song. I don't care. And, and, and let me add, I say a favorite song or a sound, mm. right? So I'll allow, I'll allow that, that, that audible for folks. Um, but, but I think that the idea of climate, environmentalism, and music has been around for a long time. If you look at the black community and the black American community, there was a song called Mercy, Mercy Me by Marvin Gaye. And it extolled what was happening with the things we were talking about way back then in, in the 60s and the 70s. I can't remember. 70s. The 70s, yeah. Even if you look further, Donald Glover, Childish Gambino had a song called Feels Like Summer. Um, People were bobbing their heads, but they didn't realize what he was saying when he was talking about the lack of water and, and all these other resources that were squandering in it because sometimes the message gets lost. And it's, it's interesting, there's an organization that, that I serve on the board of called Clean Energy Culture, clean with a K, culture with a K. And they're dedicated to ensuring that the connection between music, especially hip hop music and climate are, are interrelated. And so I, I think that's one of the ways that we have to do it. When I think about the work I do, when I think about the reason I'm here, I think about awareness. Like, we're all here, even the three of us. We know so much about this industry. We're not the ones who should be talking to. The people who should be talking to are the people who have no idea, the people who may be antagonists around it. And I think that that's one of the ways that we can we can kind of build those bridges. I would say prior to me doing the work I do now, I was at the Los Angeles Clean Tech Incubator. And I'm very proud of the work we did there, not just with founders and funding, but we actually had an artist in residence who created art that really symbolized the, the, the struggle, the successes around climate. And I think for me, I, I enjoyed going, I enjoyed looking at it. Um, but just from a practical standpoint, what our founders, the founders were like, why do we have this art? And I'm like, well, who buys art? Yeah. They say rich people. I say, who do you want to meet? So, so I, I think it's interrelated. But for me as an, as an artist, I look at what I do as an economic art because you have to paint a picture of tomorrow today. And I think that's what art does. And I, and I love it. That, that is a huge part of it. And there is this idea that came from a colleague by the name of James Andrews, who's been in the music industry and now he's a, he's a VC, that says there's a connection between artists and founders. Uh, founders make 
product and services. Artists make a service of music that they provide to buyers or the their, their stakeholders. And let's say, let's use an artist like Beyonce, who's in the news today, right? However, in order for Beyonce to make that art, she needs a record label to help assist her put it out. Similar to founders, they need a venture capital fund or other parts of financing to help them put out their art and their work. And then lastly, when I think about accelerators and incubators, to me, those are like Spotify, SoundCloud. They amplify the voices of the artist slash the founder, and they make the public and sometimes other investors or other, other funds aware of these founders and the work that they're doing. And so I think there's a huge connection between art, music, and technology. So Andrew and I both lived in Oakland, California, and there's an Oakland-affiliated artist by the name of Tupac Shakur, the late Tupac. And I keep thinking about one of the lyrics from one of his songs. Over and over, as I think about the money we're spending for wars and not for saving humanity. And I don't know if any, if I don't know if Angie or Taj, if you could think of what this lyric is. Yeah, it's it's from Keep Your Head Up, of course. Yeah, we got money for wars, <laughs> but can't feed the poor. Yeah. And it yeah. keeps on going in my mind over and over again. And it's exactly playing out. And it's a vicious cycle. And I think we're right in the middle of it right now, where the United States, for example, is mobilizing billions for wars and can't even mobilize a fraction of that yeah. for climate action. For humanity. Yeah. Our education, our health, definitely. Yes. Definitely. One thing I love about the work we do is that we have to remember we're all human. And humans, we're frail and we have faults. And the idea for me is that that you want to try to continually live a life to reduce those faults until you can't anymore. But unfortunately, because humans control policy, they control decisions, things like that are occurring, it's even in the United States, where Sometimes we give money for wars that are not even our own, right? But I think I think a lot back to the Eisenhower idea of the military-industrial complex and all these things. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's just a really interesting space. I wonder if we had diversity in our leadership at the top, maybe a female president, would that change? I'd it's, like uh, to think so. Yeah. It's something to think about. I, I think there's an insanity of doing the same thing over and over, and we have been doing so in, in the U.S., So here on the Global South Climate Tech Podcast, we include the Global South that is in the Global North in our definition. So let's stay on that theme. You're based in the United States, which is generally considered a Global North country, the largest GDP in the world in absolute terms, all of this wealth concentrated. And yet we know that there's persistent extreme inequalities persistent extreme racism, and a host of other social inequities. Can you tell us about how you address the global self that is in the United States through your work? Yeah. You know, number one, while I live in California now, I was born in Texas. And and not only born in Texas, born in an area where it's majority black. And, and I think that there is an interesting space about being in one of the richest countries in the world and having some of the problems we have in a lot of our, of our areas that it sometimes are very homogeneous. There are black people there, there are brown people there, there are immigrants in these spaces. And it's just really interesting to see the priority of it. The work that I do around in the U.S., and thankfully right now it's focusing on climate and workforce, we've made a commitment to ensure that we're looking at rural communities where we see a lot of this, this, this idea of the global south within the global north. Uh, which also has a lot of people of color 
uh, a number of immigrants. Um, we also look in the indigenous community. I think about the things that are happening now in our, in our world politically, and I often think about the indigenous community in our own country and how, wow, maybe they need their land back. And so I, I think the work that we're, we're talking about for me is that while we're here at COP and there's a lot of conversations around ensuring that we reduce the global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius, I think also, too, when we talk about, again, about adaptation, it is also about public health and economic wealth. And so I see climate, the solutions around climate, the continued use of focus on behavior change as an opportunity for the global south within the global north to become a little bit more where quality is important, at least economically. And I think economic quality leads to a better health outcome, which would lead to a better emotional outcome as well. Because I think that's one thing we don't think about is what are the emotional impacts of being in in an area that gets constantly discriminated against, whether in the U.S. or abroad as well. We talked a little bit about adaptation versus mitigation. That seems to be also a very hot topic in some of the COP28 discussions. What are your thoughts on adaptation and the narrative around it? And how should we pursue it differently? Yeah, and I think for the listeners, maybe I should define how I view adaptation. And I think that's about, you know, we're trying to do things that reduce a lot of the impacts of climate. But there's some that are here that we've already missed a boat on, whether it's uh, rising sea level changes, whether it's the wildfires in, in California, uh, whether it's the hurricanes and all these other things. And so how do we create technology that can help reduce the, the impact of it? And I think that's where I look at it as adaptation from that standpoint. And I think it's important. But also I think this is this is why difference in capital and diversity in capital is important because it will allow for these other types of technologies to come to impact those areas. This is exactly why there needs to be diversity on the funding standpoint side, so that way they can fund those those technologies that are there. The reason I love technology so much is because it shows the expansiveness of the human thought. If you can think it and, and you, can, you can have funding to help that idea, it can come to fruition. And I think that that's one of the things that's going to help with the adaptation piece of that is having people who live in those communities or impacted by those communities be a part of the solution. Because I think that's also what has not changed, I think, is that you have a lot of organizations or a lot of startups or a lot of development that says, I'm going to go into this community and tell them what they need. I'm going to go in this community because I see this issue without saying, well, let me have a conversation with this community. Even further, how we define a community Because let's just say a person goes to Nigeria and they're like, hey, I'm going to go to Nigeria and just saw this issue and not realizing, well, they're they're the Igbo, they're the Yoruba, like there's there's some differences there, right? And so I think that that's a really interesting thing about adaptation for me is that how do you allow the people in these communities that are impacted be a part of the solution? And I think that's extremely important. That's amazing. And that's a great segue into touching upon some specific climate technologies. And, you know, you've been increasingly doing more work in the region. Are there specific companies in the UAE or just the wider global south that excites you and that you can find um, has a lot of impact potential? Yeah. Well, well firstly, Include Ventures, which is which is one of the, the firms that I'm a partner at, and, 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 and we're a fund of funds. So we, we tend to invest in the funds that invest in the technologies. But as a person that's curious, and I think you, you have to have a bit of curiosity to be an investor, there are a lot of things that I see that are really interesting. Um, I remember once, and I'm trying to remember the name of the company, that used palm fronds to create 
energy. And I think that's very important. You think about the Caribbean, we have a, an abundance of that. But post-hurricane, there's an opportunity to utilize that to build generators. I spent a lot of time recently in the Dominican Republic, and one of the things we've been looking at is ways to have alternative energy and really introducing solar. It's interesting that a lot of the conversations that we've had in the islands has not been about the lack of understanding, but it's been about who's presenting the solution and do you have a relationship with that place to present the solution. And, you know, what's interesting, I was talking to a property owner in Santiago, and I was saying, hey, you know, you can you can have alternative energy here because, you know, if anybody has been to Dominican Republic, one thing that's common that you probably remember is the power goes off sometime during the day uh, for, for a bit. Uh, and, and if you're from there, you just deal with it as part of life. But if you're visiting, you're like, what is going on? Unless you live in a resort or in a resort, it's different. You get treated different. But I think that from that standpoint, when I had a conversation with the property owner and I was saying, you know, you should look at solar. His, his comment back was, yeah, but they look, my property look ugly, bad. And I think for me, instead of, you know, poo-pooing on that feeling, the alternative is, well, let me find something and look at things that are that can be beautiful. Right. And so I've been seeing a lot of technology that's been using these panels that are solar circular. And I'm trying to remember the name of the company that I met at Verge Mm. um, that's using different types of technologies. There's companies really developing technologies from a solar standpoint that look like the tiles that we see in California. And I think things like that are important, but they come from listening to to the population. And I think that's one of the lost arts on technology and investors is the fact of listening more as, as opposed to extolling their knowledge and, and everything else. And I think that's a huge part of it. Other areas of adaptation that I'm, that I'm thinking about, I'm seeing is, is a little bit different too, because I think about how technology from one region can be adapted for another. Uh, recently, I was in California and I saw this company based out of India called Tao Lotus, and they built electric motorcycles. And I think in the US, when you think about electric motorcycles, it's more, more of a vanity thing, more of a, like, a play thing, but they developed this motorcycle for use with many countries in Asia, in Africa, and in the Caribbean used for taxis. So there's a lot of features that would, uh, would accommodate that. And, and I think about adaptation from a standpoint of the impacts of climate, but also how can you change technologies and, and, and companies to where it fits in that region? Because either you're listening or you have people from that region as well. Thankfully, this company not only had that exposure in India and to know that this will work in India, but one of the co-founders was Indian and now he's Sri Lankan and from South America, I believe. So he had this, this lens on it as well, which I love because I think that the world is vastly becoming more and more where you're having people who are this and, right? And I think that's being really interesting as well. I think that what you just said, Taj, around the yes and to humanity is so true and that we are all more than one thing. So for me, for example, I am a Jamaican national and a U.S. national and a French national and I've lived in China and Madagascar and I'm a woman and, and, and. So we have these different identities that intersect and form who we are And I think someone once said this, but there's nothing more dangerous than a single narrative. Yeah, I think all three of us have a tie to the global south, uh, the global emerging south to the north. And all three of us also live some of the times in the global north in those areas. And I I think you're going to see a lot more of that, whether it's for climate migration, which I also include in economic migration, 
is the impact of climate. And I think we're going to see a lot more people who have those type of visions who are seeing that. And, and I think that's important. That's going to be important for the conversation as well. You know, there, there's a term that I've used in this, in this standpoint that's called, and some of the listeners may know, Marilyn I know, and Andrew, we talked about this as well, called code switching. Yeah. Or you speak one way at home or around amongst friends and you speak another way in public. And I think there needs to be a climate code switching to where when we're together, we're talking about climate or some of your listeners that are here, we're talking about it in a way that we all know. We may be using acronyms and sure. things that people have an idea about. But when we go out, we must speak in a different way. We must use a different language. But if I quote a book uh, from a guy by the name of Frank Luntz, we must use words that work, that give people hope and idea. I think for so long when we talk about climate, it's been all doom and gloom. Mm. But we need to have some bloom language, right? It needs to have some growth language. And to that point about intersectionality, I even think about, if Marilyn and I had this conversation about death, I think a lot of cultures look at death differently. And sometimes it's, it's not good when people say um, they put their own lens on it when others have it. And so I think that's the same thing with climate as well. Right. There, there is this uh, phenomenon in the global north, especially, of climate anxiety, especially among the youth. And there is a debate happening around that and who who is experiencing that, what other forms of injustices are concurrently happening that can compound those, those feelings and those emotions. And I do think there's a lot to learn from people in the global south who do not always have electricity, who do not always have readily available clean water, who don't always have convenient infrastructure for transportation in terms of thriving in less than ideal conditions. And I think it's not just the lack of resources that creates a certain condition by which we can all learn. I think it's also the genius of creating solutions for those situations that we really desperately need right now to solve climate change. Absolutely. There's this old adage in the South that says you find a way or you make one. And I think that that's what a lot of people in the global South have been doing for a long time. You know, I think a lot when we talk about the global South and climate, they've been having solutions because they've had to, that if we take a look and just, just had some, some care and some capital towards it, we can implement. There's a founder in the U.S., and I'm blanking on her name, but she grew up in Nigeria and she thought about this idea about the lack of energy and the use of kerosene and other types of, of fuel to fuel their village. And she came up with this idea of a soccer ball that when you kick the ball, it created kinetic energy. And then from that ball, you can, you can use it as a generator or a charger, rather, right? And I thought that was so ingenious, right? Because it, 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 it included the culture, which football or soccer uh, is a part of that culture in that village, but it also provide a solution within the culture. And, and I think that's important when we're talking about the solutions for not just the global South, but just humanity as well. Look, climate is not just about changing the, the landscape of what corporations do. It is about behavioral change, which is so much harder. And it's not only the behavior of consumers or people, but the people who actually work at these companies and changing their behavior to, to change what the organization is doing, whether it's the board of directors, whether it's the leadership, and so forth. And so I think that's a really interesting part of it where that intersectionality comes in again, right? Because some of the people who lead these organizations may be a man and maybe 
Chinese American and maybe Jamaican and and so I think that that's where the idea of the benefit of intersectionality comes from. My perspective on this is having worked in China for I think eight years now is this idea of being pragmatic, and we have all these conversations. And to your point, code switching is very important because I I, I would still say a, a vast majority of people. Aren't educated in the sort of the climate narrative, right? That we all talk about, but being pragmatic around economic solutions and incentives is what a lot of folks do understand. And if we can almost embed the climate solutions, the benefits into you know risk and reward, I think that can be more inclusive and applicable for a lot of people. Absolutely, it's about being simple. And using language that is connective, which is again why I love poetry. It, it allows you to express yourself using different type of languages and allow those languages to have color. And I think that's important around this space, around this idea of climate and connection. And going back to this idea of art, sometimes art can say so many things without saying a word. And we need that right now to make people more aware. I, I think if people were more aware outside of those of us who are in this space. You might have policy changes that come quicker. Yeah. You may have corporations changes that come quicker. And then putting on my, my economist hat or Kofi, it is about the idea of incentives, right? What incentivizes a human? It may economics may incentivize them. So you talk from that standpoint. Their health may incentivize them. For corporations, the market may incentivize them. So yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that we have to look at different ways around climate and the solutions that we're doing. One of the things that people understand immediately, as well, is jobs, and that's something Taj that you are now spearheading the world of green jobs, sustainability-oriented jobs, climate-friendly jobs. Tell us more about that work and why it's so important, including in the global south. For so many years, I was an investor in the space, and I thought that was one of the ways I could contribute. And when I look at investing, I, look, I think of that as job creation. We, we invest in the companies that in turn create the jobs. And for so long, when I was in climate, I was so much about hardware companies more than just software companies in climate because that's another way you can create jobs and opportunities. A number of years ago, Ares, which has a $2.2 billion climate infrastructure fund, started, I think, having some of the same concerns. And they provided a, a bit of funding, $25 million to Jobs for the Future, or JFF, based in Boston, that focuses on workforce. And they had this idea to say, what if we create climate-resilient employees for a sustainable tomorrow, which is called CREST? But they also wanted to have a global lens on it, which I think is fantastic because their work is global. So they also provided funding for JFF and for World Resources Institute India. Look at this issue around climate and workforce. For us in the U.S., the idea is how can we train and place 25,000 individuals in climate jobs within the next five years? And further, going back to our conversation around this idea of awareness, how can we make sure that over 100,000 people are aware of the opportunities in jobs? And so that work I'm really excited about. It allows us to provide funding to regions, cities, nonprofits, universities for them to train and place people into these climate jobs. It allows us to work with exciting entrepreneurs who are creating technologies that will require jobs and require skills. And it allows me to go to places like COP to make sure the conversation about workforce is front and center and that we include the human element in these solutions that we're talking about. 
And lastly, it goes back to this idea of incentives. Remember, I'm from Texas, from the South. And so there are certain segments where we don't even use the word green. We don't use the word climate because we know that there will be a political trigger, a social behavioral trigger. So we just focus on this idea of jobs, of economics, and dare I say, building green wealth with this opportunity. And I think it goes back to this idea of, I don't care what they call, it's almost like a gateway drug for most folks who may remember Nancy Reagan back in the day with, with DARE. We want to have a gateway to climate activism or actionism uh, by any means necessary. And for me, what that means is that if I can go to a Southern state and say, look, here's an opportunity for you to take advantage of both public and private funding for better tax base for your, for your people to keep you in office because people are happy and they're, they're full, their bellies are full because they have jobs, then if that incentivizes them, so be it. Even if they don't believe in the science, they don't believe in it, I'll be honest, I don't care. I want them to act. Because a lot of times, I think from a political standpoint, we've had over history where people have acted and never even know what they were doing. And they're acting in ways that was unintended consequences. And so I think for me, we have to have this bigger tent strategy around climate. And we have to make sure that we're including people in this space that we normally might not have these conversations with, but at least they're doing the things that we need them to do to move things forward. Taj, this has been an incredible conversation. We've got to learn so much about your background to understand the macro challenges in the environment, the social challenges. We've also been able to talk about some of the climate, Global South climate tech solutions that you are watching and you're interested in. Uh, we also got to talk about the intersectionality between art, poetry, climate, incentives, and action. Uh, this has been an incredibly insightful conversation. Where can people find you? Number one, thank you both. This has been great. And, and I love the fact that we're talking about the global South or the global majority. And also this, the nuance that there could be a global South within the global North. And to make sure that we're always having these conversations about having people on, on podcasts like this to have these conversations. People can find me on LinkedIn. If you use my full name, Taj Ahmad Eldridge, Um, I often say I wear many hats, both literally and figuratively. So if you spot the hat, you'll spot me. Also, too, if you're on social media, I try to be active there. It's a little bit difficult. But I I think that, you know, on the new X, for now, (laughs) you'll see me there. No, Taj, get out of X. (laughs) Leave it like I did. I'm hoping somebody else buys it. But I'm on others. So (laughs) I'm going to give some some folks might not know about the spill. Take a look at Spill. But I'm Econo Ahmad all across the area from Instagram to Spill, which is a good one that um, you see a lot of people of color on, which I love, Instagram as well. There's actually a new social media site called Row, And Row is for activists and influencers, which I think is going to be really huge in the upcoming future. Um, but yeah, you can find me in those places. And if you ever see me on the street with a hat, say hello. All right. Thank you so much, Taj, for coming. We really loved having you. Have a great rest of your trip here in Dubai and during COP28. Great. Gracias. We'll see you around. For those interested in learning more about the Global South Climate Tech Podcast and the organizations behind it, please check out www.gsclimatetech.com. The Global South Climate Tech Podcast is produced by Frequency Media. This episode was recorded on-site at COP28 in Dubai. Our executive producer is Michelle Corey. Our sound designer, field engineer, and editor is Claire Bidigary-Curtis. Our producer is Lizzie Stewart, 
And our associate producer is Sara Naz Jad Babayi. And we're your co-hosts, Marilyn Waite and Andrew Chang. <laughs>